welcome to Autism in the Adult podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Teresa Regan, an adult neuropsychologist. I specialize in brain behavior relationships for those 14 and older. I'm the parent of an amazing teen on the autism spectrum and a certified autism specialist. I am deeply grateful to bring validation, hope, and purpose to individuals and their families living on the autism spectrum. With this mission at its core, I founded and currently direct the OSF Healthcare Adult Diagnostic Autism Center in Central Illinois. My books include Understanding Autism in Adults and Aging Adults and Understanding Autistic Behaviors. For more information and to join my online community for free, visit www.adultandgeriatricautism.com. Please join me in helping individuals, couples, and families thrive while living life on the autism spectrum. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Teresa Regan joining you today to talk about autism in the adult. Our topic today is going to be about diagnosis, and this is the one question that I get most frequently from emails and other inquiries from across the country and even other countries is that how do I, as someone on a journey for myself or a loved one, seek out an evaluation for possible autism diagnosis in adulthood and really do that in a way that I'm going to get a very good assessment that reveals what the true pattern of my needs is. Before we jump into the specifics about that topic, I also want to direct you to the link in the podcast below that has information about a free webinar that I'll be conducting in February. It's the 16th of February from 4 to 5 Pacific Time and 7 to 8 Eastern Time. This is a live free webinar, and we're going to talk about general information about autism in the adult and also specifically about missed and wrong diagnoses. We're going to bust common myths about autism, talk about core features and red flags, and why a diagnosis can make a difference at any age. We're going to review some information about how to seek an autism diagnosis as an adult, and there will be questions uh, at the end uh, and there will be a period of time at the end for interactive questions. As typically happens, if we don't get to every question, we really value the questions that you type in because this helps us plan uh, interactive topics and webinars and presentations for the future based on information that you really want. Also, if you register at the link below, you'll get the opportunity to access the webinar at any time for one week after the actual live event. So if you're like me and your schedule isn't always your own, You'll have a whole week to go ahead and access that, listen to parts of it that might be interesting or helpful to you or to a loved one. So in the topic of autism assessment and that quest to find someone that really could give you the most accurate diagnosis, evaluation, and also you don't just want a diagnosis, but you want to learn about what that looks like in you or in your loved one. So you want these individualized kinds of feedback and individualized recommendations. So given the pattern of autism characteristics 
that's in our home or in my classroom or in my system, what kinds of things might specifically help? So that individualized approach. So there are aspects of seeking a diagnosis that we won't cover in this one podcast, but what I do want to emphasize is something that the Diagnostic Manual for Autism really specifies specifically, and that is that the best diagnosis, the most uh, valid, uh, really impactful diagnosis is going to occur when someone gathers... So you're with a professional that gathers information from multiple sources. And multiple sources may include record review. That could be from a school, from a job, from a medical record. It could include talking to different people, family members, friends. It could be, of course, getting history from the individual themselves, interacting with the individual during an interview process. It could be role-playing. It could be questionnaires. So one of the things that professionals are urged to do is to gather lots of information to look not at one piece, but at the overall pattern of these neurologic behaviors. So can we see this pattern evolve that looks like, oh, that's a neurologic behavioral pattern, and I recognize what that is, and because I know the criteria, I know where that falls in the diagnostic process. What you don't want to do is rely on a process where the individual examiner is using uh, one piece of information. So that might be a diagnostic interview with the cutoff score. And perhaps they use only that cutoff score to make the diagnosis. Or a questionnaire um, with a cutoff score to make that diagnosis. And the reason that that's problematic is, of course, that you're not using the big picture of information. And even if these questionnaires and diagnostic interviews are really uh, very high quality, they are only one piece of the puzzle. And each of these manuals for the interviews and the questionnaires will emphasize that the cutoff score should not be used alone in the decision to make a diagnosis or not. And so someone who's really skilled at that diagnosis and experienced in it is gonna know that although a cutoff score is one piece of the puzzle, you can't use that alone in determining whether the diagnosis is present. One of the limitations of a diagnostic interview or a questionnaire is that it samples certain behavioral patterns. um, And in order to get a sample, it can't get it every possible way that the criteria could be met. So um, by definition, our lives are so complex that the neurologic patterns could be expressed in a variety of ways. And all of that's not going to be captured either in one session with the individual or one questionnaire. Um, It's, again, a sample, and we have to know that we're trying to call as much data as we can from records and talking to a variety of people and getting as much information as we can. And all of that is not going to be contained in one specific diagnostic interview or questionnaire. One of the ways to really see whether the examiner understands the neurologic behavioral patterns involved 
you know, if they say to you, um, yes, you meet those criteria or uh, no, you don't, I would really urge you to ask them how and why. So let's say they say, uh, yes, you have a diagnosis. I would ask them to give you really individualized feedback about what autism characteristics look like in you and how that's expressed. And so in order to do that, the examiner should be able to go beyond that cutoff score, right? They should be able to go through the criteria and say, these are the seven criteria and these are how you, how you meet specifically these criteria to give you this threshold of diagnosis. And alternately, if someone says you don't have autism, I would really ask them to be specific. What criteria don't I meet? And that's a really valid question. So tell me about what criteria I don't meet and tell me about what a better diagnosis might be, what your conceptualization is and how it differs from autism. So getting this very specific knowledge from the expert that you're working with about how the characters are or are not expressed in your life and within you. And some people have autism characteristics, so you have these neurologic characteristics, but they won't necessarily meet threshold for a diagnosis. So what we've done as a community of people who've seen this neurologic behavioral pattern is that we say, oh, we should call that something, right? Because these features hang together. They hang together in the brain. When these brain pathways are involved, they hang together in specific individuals. And so let's call that something so that we're efficient at studying it and communicating about it. And so we call it autism spectrum disorder. And so then groups of specialists have to figure out when should we call it that? Uh, should we call it when they have these five criteria, when they have three of these and two of these? And so some type of threshold is decided upon. And that helps us communicate about it, study it, offer services. But in the wild, so to speak, someone can still have bits and pieces of these neurologic characteristics that impact their day-to-day -day life, and it may not meet that threshold. And that's fine to know. Uh, sometimes we might call that the broader autism phenotype. Uh, and sometimes we might call it something like sub-threshold autism characteristics. And it's important to distinguish that the threshold isn't met, but some of the coping strategies, some, some of the interventions, some of the self-knowledge that comes with that autism conceptualization still may impact you. It still may help you. Um, and so when we're talking about threshold, we're just talking about whether that full criteria um, pattern is met. Um, and sub-threshold is whether there are neurologic behavioral characteristics there that are impacting you that, but may not have the wide base, that full threshold for the diagnosis. A lot of times, unfortunately, I'll hear perhaps another professional talk to me about a patient and say, well, they don't have autism. And then I will say, well, what criteria don't you think they meet? And in actuality, I really have never had 
that any person specify a criteria. They just end up feeling like the cutoff score wasn't met or that they don't have the feel, they don't have the impression that they think they would have if this individual in their office was on the spectrum. So you really do want to choose a professional who knows the diagnostic criteria, how they can be met, and what that looks like in you, and that knowledge leads to these very individualized recommendations. So you don't wanna just leave with a diagnosis, yes or no, you wanna leave with individualized recommendations, and that's gonna come from someone who knows those criteria inside and out. So if I'm working with a patient and I'm gathering information from history and role play and records and uh, family members and speaking to the individual and questionnaires and all of those things, I should be able to see a pattern of behavior and know which criteria that hangs under, or sometimes it may hang under a couple of the criteria. And that's what's really gonna drive me as a clinician to be most effective for you or for your loved one or whoever is on that journey to figure out what neurologic characteristics they have and how to have self-knowledge about that, how to communicate about it to other people, and also how to regulate themselves um, toward the best outcomes. And that's what we're really after. So in searching for this assessment, I would ask what process do you use um, to go about that diagnostic uh, decision? Do you use one cutoff score? Do you gather information from multiple sources? Um, Will you give me Will you be able to give me feedback about what specific criteria are met and how, and also how that impacts my personal journey, my life, my interactions, and the the recommendations that you might have for me? Part of the deep knowledge that you want the professional to have about the criteria is that even though there are seven criteria, they can be met in different ways. So let me give you an example. So... The first criteria has to do with social-emotional reciprocity, which is during a social exchange, a conversation, um, we like there to be this ability in the brain to exchange uh, the inner life, so emotions, thoughts, experiences, opinions, and we want there to be a good ability to approach uh, the social exchange, social approach, to take turns, to know the rhythm of when to talk and when not to talk. And so the person may meet that criteria if they are extremely quiet, they are unable to know what to say, when to say it, how to express themselves, how to approach someone. They might rely on asking a question and listening for long periods of time without exchanging. Or the person may have the opposite pattern where they struggle with social um, exchange because they dominate. They uh, are intrusive, they talk too much, they talk over people, they dominate the topic, they resist transitions in topic. And so the examiner needs to know that both patterns, although opposite, and you don't typically you know, think of those in the same person, that both patterns really could meet that same criteria. 
Alternatively, there's a sensory processing criteria. And this one is one that may or may not be met, but if it's met, it can add toward that threshold of diagnosis. But there are eight sensory systems that could be considered. There's the five that we usually think about. Then there's vestibular, which is a movement sense, proprioception, which is a sense of where the body is in space, and interoception, what is the body doing inside? And this criteria may be met if the sensory process is underreactive, overreactive, or if there's an unusual fascination within a certain sensory domain. And so the person really has to be skilled at knowing all eight of these categories, assessing them, recognizing what underreactivity looks like, what overreactivity looks like, what fascination looks like, and knowing that these characteristics aren't likely to be uh, demonstrated within an office setting. Uh, they may um, be something they're looking at more in the history and they may change over age range or they may look different during hormonal seasons. And so you really want uh, an expert who understands how to assess that specific criteria even more so than just a few questionnaire questions. I hope that this really arms you with some information about how to seek a professional and why. Why to think about someone who can address the criteria themselves and someone who uses multiple sources of information to identify neurologic behavioral patterns to really see if that's what's most descriptive of you in your journey and then to give you that individualized feedback. A reminder, I hope you will check out the link below and join me for the live webinar about autism in the adult through the Zur Institute on February 16th. The times are included in the link in the registration form. And remember that if you register, you're able to access that link in webinar for a full week afterward. And if you're able to join us live, there'll be time for questions at the end. And I really hope you submit those. We'll have time to cover some of those questions and the remaining questions will help guide future webinars and topics. I wish you well on your diagnostic journey and thank you for joining me.